Landmark Baptists, who are they? Why should you care? And what do I think about it? If anyone cares to know, welcome to the Baptist Broadcast. I'm your host, Joshua Summer. I am pastor of Victory Baptist Church in Kansas City, Missouri. I'm glad to have you. If you're ever in town on a Sunday, please stop by. We'd love to meet you and worship with you. And if you are watching here on YouTube, do not forget to click the subscribe button down below underneath this screen and the bell for continued notifications. You can get us anywhere you get your podcast, Spotify, iTunes, Podcast Addict, you name it. Search us, we'll be there. What does it mean? to be a Landmark Baptist. Uh, many of you probably have no idea what a Landmark Baptist is, and and I'm willing to wager a wooden nickel that most of you probably have never heard of Landmark Baptists. And if you have heard of Landmark Baptists, uh, perhaps uh, you, you just don't know what it is. Um, the other portion of you uh, may have had run-ins with this, and so I, I think it's uh, important to talk about uh, so that when you walk into one of these churches, you're not blindsided, you kind of understand, you know, if you're ever visiting predominantly in the South, um, y- you're not going to be blindsided by that theology uh, if it's something that you've never heard of before. So uh, the purpose in me making this video is really just to educate, to give my thoughts about this in a, a hopefully charitable way. Uh, and uh, and and hopefully equip you to make your own decisions about things like this. Um, I didn't know what landmarkism was until uh, about five years ago. I ran into J. M. Carroll's Trail of Blood. J. M. Carroll is the brother of B. H. Carroll, uh, who was very affluent in the early years of the Southern Baptist Convention, and so landmarkism uh, was promoted by the Carroll brothers. Uh, and became uh, kind of a tour de force in uh, in the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, the main pioneers of the landmark movement uh, are men like J.R. Graves, um, you know, J.M. Pendleton, and A.C. Dayton. You see pictures of two of them. Uh, Graves is the larger of the two. The other one is uh, J.M. Pendleton and A.C. Dayton. I don't have a picture for. Um, but Graves is the larger of the two in this picture because Graves is considered the father of landmarkism, publishing his work, Old Landmarkism, What Is It?, in 1880, and that has been somewhat of a standard work in and amongst the landmark movement. If you want to know what landmarkism teaches, you can go to Old Landmarkism, What Is It?, now, uh, because there's never been a, you know, codification of, you know, agreed upon landmark doctrine through something like a general assembly or an association, which is understandable given what landmarkism is, it's understandable that there wouldn't be any such kinds of meetings to uh, establish some kind of orthodoxy on landmarkism. And we'll see why that's the case here in a moment. But as a result, it's very difficult to actually define landmarkism in a way that everyone would agree. Um, and so that's why I point you to the original sources. Um, you know, you talk to one landmarker and they're probably not going to say the same thing about the, uh, about landmarkism as, uh, another landmarker. And so, uh, it, it's very important that I acknowledge that up front. This is not a standardized position by any means. This isn't like the doctrines of grace where there's been so much confessional literature spilled that you can point to this confessional document and say, this is what we have believed. This is what, you know, Calvinists have believed. Uh, landmarkism is, is 
uh, is not like that. And basically, at present, there are two major branches of landmarkism, old landmarkism and neo-landmarkism, uh, both of which are prominent in uh, the southern states uh, predominantly. And um, y the differences between those uh, two forms of landmarkism uh, would have to do with the fact that old landmarkism is less hesitant to establish a sort of chain-link Baptist successionism from the apostles on into the present day, whereas the neo-landmarkers, uh, sometimes called EMDA, uh, which is, is something like, um, it's not eternal mother-daughter, uh, it, it's, uh, I can't remember what the, the E stands for, um, uh, but it's it may be something like eternal mother daughter authority or something like that. Um, uh, but it's all it also goes by neo landmarkism. They're they're most concerned about establishing a chain link uh, identity from the apostles onward into the present day. And so they'll say things like, well, if you weren't constituted from a properly constituted Baptist church, then you cannot be a true church. Uh, so there has to be an actual. Um, you know, a mother church that begets, so to speak, a, a daughter church. Um, and if that relationship is not intact, uh, you may think you are a Baptist church, but you're not in the eyes of these neo-landmarkers. I want to address old landmarkism today, and that's because old landmarkism is a lot more, um, uh, I, I think, um, uh, old landmarkism is a lot more Baptist. Let's put it that way. Um, uh, Neo-landmarkism, I think, takes apost the apostolic successionism that you find in Roman Catholicism and applies it to the local church. And I think old landmarkism implies that, but I don't think old landmarkism is, is consistent with that point. And there are a lot of things that, you know, uh, J.R. Graves wrote and, and J.M. Pendleton wrote that, that I can agree with as a Baptist. Uh, and so I'm not, I'm not trying to put those men down. Uh, I'm not trying to, you know, excommunicate them or anything like that. Um, but I do think that when it comes to landmark distinctives, the ones that they tried to develop in their works, uh, there are some very serious issues. And I think those serious issues that are pregnant in their literature have developed into uh, perhaps even things in the present day that that they wouldn't even necessarily agree with. Um, and and so and some things they would agree with. And I think that landmarkism has 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 kind of uh, given way to some other than favorable fruit. Um, and and so I want to talk about it for all those reasons. I say all that to say that there's an actual pastoral reason behind, you know, making something like this. Uh, it's for you, the viewer, when you're out there and you're visiting churches or you're traveling the country and you stop into a Baptist church and, and you hear something about landmarkism, you'll be equipped. Uh, those of you who have had to wrestle with this doctrine, those of you who have had perhaps even confrontations revolving around this doctrine, uh, this video is hopefully for you. What I want to do is I want to begin with Baptist history that uh, starts at a point before uh, the landmark movement began. Uh, and I'm going to put the date of the landmark movement squarely in 1880 when Graves published his volume, Landmarkism, Old Landmarkism, What Is It? I want to begin in the 17th century, and I want to establish a, a couple of things. Um, 
Landmarkism makes a couple of claims, uh, has a couple of distinctives, we might say, and, and I'm addressing old landmarkism here. And these two distinctives are as follows. Number one, there is no universal church. Now, I think when J.R. Graves was writing, he was critiquing a specific version of the universal church, an abuse of the universal church that you see in uh, places like Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy. And, uh, and I think what he ended up doing was expanding that false notion of the universal church to every single version of the doctrine. Um, and so what ends up happening is a, is a rejection of the universal or the, or the Catholic church, to use the language of the Apostles' Creed. And when I say the Catholic church, I mean little c, Catholic, I don't mean Roman Catholic, I mean um, Christ's one body and bride uh, that agrees in faith. Uh, has one spirit, uh, and is uh, in heaven going to be that great festal gathering or general assembly uh, that has already begun, that we've come to, uh, according to Hebrews 12. And so um, when uh, when we're going in, in when we're going to the 17th century, when we're going back to Baptist history in the 17th century, what I hope to convey is uh, the point or the historical point, that Baptists in the 17th century did not believe that, right? Baptists in the 17th century wholly embraced the notion of Catholicity and the notion of the universal church. And that's true for both particular Baptists and general Baptists, and we'll see that uh, here in a moment. The second claim that landmarkism makes is that, and I think this really follows from the first, uh, if you're going to reject Catholicity, if you're going to reject the universal church, then you have to locate the true church somewhere. And the landmarkers following J.R. Graves locate the true church in the Baptist church only, seeing the true church as, as being identified by the way, pre- predominantly the way in which, among other things, but the way in which it administers baptism. And so the true church consists entirely in the visible behavior of Christians in these gathered societies. Uh, the visible church is entirely re- reducible to the local church. And so that means, uh, and the implication of that is, that the Baptist church is the only true church. All of a sudden, there's there's problems, because most landmarkers will want to affirm, you know, uh, the salvation of their paedo baptist brethren. They'll say, you know, um, paedo baptists can be saved, they can be... Um, uh, true believers, even though they'll never be part of a church. And remember, they reject the universal church. So there's no possibility that they're part of the universal church. And there's obviously no possibility that they're part of the local visible assembly either, because paedo baptist churches practice an irregular or false version of baptism. Therefore, they're not a church at all. The problem with that is in Scripture, we find that the one that is united to Christ, that is being redeemed and sanctified and and will finally be presented to him in all perfection, is the church. And so there's some sense in which no one who is not part of the church, who is not part of Christ's body and bride, there's a sense in which no one that's not part of that bride will be saved. Um, And so the landmark Baptists don't have a way, in my opinion, to account for that. And so they'll say on the one hand that Pado baptists can be saved, but they'll say on the other hand that they're not part of any kind of true church, um, in which case uh, 
the uh, atoning, the limit, the definite atoning work of our Lord has to be thrown into question. Did he come for his church or not? Um, or did he come for, for some larger group that is beyond his church? Can, can someone really be saved without being united to Christ and thus considered part of his body? You know, these categories aren't really discussed, and, and this problem isn't really resolved in historical landmarkism, in my opinion. So let's, let's do what I said I was, I was going to do and, and go to uh, the Second London Confession. Again, 17th century document, was published in 1677. It was voted on by the Baptists uh, of London, uh, the London Association, in 1689 at the General Assembly. And chapter 26, paragraph 1 reads, The Catholic or universal church, which, with respect to the internal work of the Spirit and truth of grace, may be called invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ, the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Now, I want us to notice a couple of things with regard to their use of the language universal church or Catholic church. Number one, they define it as all of the elect. All those, the whole number of the elect uh, who are being gathered into one under Christ, the head thereof. So there are two concepts there that become really very important for our understanding of ecclesiology and our understanding of the broader doctrine of the church, and that is election and union with Christ. Union with Christ is the doctrine really from which we get the language in Scripture of Christ's body, uh, of Christ's bride, you know, this idea of being one body with him, there's union there, this idea of being his bride, you know, and you think about marriage and, you know, Genesis 2 and and, and Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, and that's, all of that is language of union. It's meant to, uh, in our minds, recall the, uh, the notion of union with Christ, and so if we have union with Christ, we are part of Christ's church. Because we are his body, we are we are part of his body, we are we are in his bride. Now the question becomes, okay, if you are united to Christ and you are therefore part of this universal church, one of his elect, uh, are you gathered with a local assembly? Because the way in which that invisible body of believers that is spiritually changed on the inside, hence invisible, uh, becomes visible, so to speak, or the way in which it lives out life in this present state is through a local assembly. And so we would say that if you claim to be part of the body of Christ, if you are in union with Christ, then as an effect of that, you should be gathering in a local assembly. And so the Baptists, the confessional, you know, particular Baptists have a way to account for, on the one hand, uh, this this kind of transcendent notion of the church at large and the local assembly. They're able to affirm local church autonomy, you know, congregational church polity and all of that as well in chapter 26 of the Second London Confession. But they're also able to affirm, hey, the church is more transcendent than just, you know, a chain of local congregations from the apostles onward. It's more transcendent. It's broader than just a local congregation. Um, it has reference to union with Christ. It, it comes from the decree of election, and, and so is much more transcendent. Uh, that's not even to begin discussion about the saints in heaven and how Hebrews 12 understands this idea of this kind of transcendent church to which we've all come as believers 
a church, a local church in Africa, as well as a local church in New York City, both hold on to the promise in, a, in Hebrews 12 that they indeed have come. That's the perfect tense used in, uh, in, in Hebrews 12, that you have come to Mount Zion. You have come to this festal gathering and this, this, this church of, of the firstborn. And, and that's true, again, for someone living in the 12th century as much as it is for someone living in the 21st century. So there's this, this, this transcendent idea of the church, while also uh, there is, in this present state, the local church. And I think what J.R. Graves does is he reduces everything to the local church. And as a result, they don't really have a, a way to account for the existence of believers who are not Baptists, right? Um, and so let's go to the general Baptists. Um, the Orthodox Creed is good in many places. Uh, this is going to be Article 29. Of course, we're going to have differences with the general Baptists in several important areas, one of which will be uh, soteriology, obviously. Um, how the Second London Confession, you know, interacts with man's free will versus how the Orthodox Creed might. Uh, so we'll have differences, but on several parts, you know, the doctrine of God at the beginning is very good, um, and, and and this statement here, I think, is very good, and it aligns in a lot of ways with the Second London Confession. It's a general Baptist document um, from the 17th century, and it says, there is one holy Catholic church consisting of or made up of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered in one body under Christ, the only head thereof, which church is gathered by special grace and the powerful and internal work of the Holy Spirit and are effectually united unto Christ their head and can never fall away. So notice what they do there again is they associate, along with the particular Baptists in the 17th century, is they associate the universal or the Catholic Church with the body of Christ, or they, they, they associate the universal or Catholic Church with union with Christ. Uh, so I, I don't think there's a way to deny the universal church without implying some sort of a denial of union with Christ, um, because it just is the bride or the church which Christ unites to himself. And so if you're saying that no one except Baptists can be true churches, right, um, then essentially what you're saying is no one but Baptists can be united to Christ. Uh, and, and that is to say, the implication of that is to say that no one but Baptists can be saved. Because if you're saved, then you're vitally united to Christ. If you're vitally united to Christ, then you're part of Christ's church. So to have that category of this transcendent, universal, invisible, because it's a spiritual institution, church is, I think, very helpful uh, on the one hand, and it's very scriptural, as we'll see here in a moment. There are several places in Scripture that um, uh, that I think obviously teach that that there has to be a a universal, invisible church. We'll see that. We'll visit places like Ephesians five twenty five. You know, who is Christ sanctifying? Who did Christ die for? Who is Christ sanctifying? Uh, and and who is going to be presented before Christ? Um, you know, there in verse twenty seven. Uh, we'll look at Hebrews 12, and we'll look at um, Galatians uh, chapter 1. Before we get to Scripture, however, we'll look at J.R. Graves. The first thing I want to look at J.R. Graves is some of his language regarding the kingdom. Now, what he does with the kingdom and the church is interesting, and I don't think he succeeds in doing what he's trying to do. 
instead of having this universal Catholic church, this is how I read Graves. Instead of having this universal or Catholic church, which is the confessional Baptist position, as, we ju as we've just seen in, this, in the 17th century, preceding Graves' life, if, if you're going to reject that, you have to, you have to replace it with some kind of a universal notion. And Graves seems to do that with the kingdom. And so uh, there, he does more than just that. But I think one of the things that's going on in Graves' mind is, well, how are we going to account for the unity of the church, or these churches, rather, um, if there is no universal church? It, it, something has to fill the void. And he does that, he attempts to do that with the kingdom. Um, the problem is, there wouldn't be necessarily a problem with that if he didn't understand the kingdom in entirely visible terms. And, you know, if, if we're talking about a spiritual or heavenly institution, we're automatically speaking of something that's invisible, that perhaps has visible effects, but is in and of itself uh, invisible. For example, the heavenly Jerusalem, like, where is that? Uh, it exists, it's real, Bible teaches it, but it's not visible. Um, regeneration, you know, what is that? Well, uh, it's the invisible work of the Holy Spirit. I mean, can you see the Holy Spirit? No, but the Holy Spirit is more real than reality itself. And so um, I, I think Graves makes a grave mistake, pardon the uh, the pun there, um, in, in reducing the kingdom to nothing but a visible institutional kingdom that consists in local churches. But I, I, I can see what he's doing there. He's trying to wrestle with the universality, this, this undeniable aspect of universality with regard to Christ's church. And he does that with the kingdom. So one of the things he says is this. The church has a specified organization, officers, faith, laws, and ordinances, and a living membership. Okay, so we've got that. Um, and, and I agree with that. And therefore, it must be visible. Um. Yes, uh, I think that's true. So, uh, but but I would want to qualify uh, that the way in which it's visible is it's it's visible in a sense that an aspect of it is visible. It can't be reducible entirely to a visible entity, and I and I think everyone should be able to agree with that on the surface because obviously regeneration is an invisible work. We would call the visible effect of regeneration conversion. But regeneration itself is an, is, a, is an inward working of the Holy Spirit that you cannot see until it produces effects, okay? And uh, even then, you can't always, you know, because those effects are imperfect. So you cannot see, like, regeneration as a thing, just like you can't see the Holy Spirit work regeneration, okay? It produces effects, but it itself is invisible, so he says it has a special. The church has a specified organization, officers, faith, laws, and ordinances, and a living membership, and therefore it must be visible. Christ never set up but one kingdom, was never constituted king of but one kingdom, and his word recognizes but one kingdom. So there you have the universality of the kingdom, right? He's not saying that each individual local church is the kingdom. He's saying there is one kingdom, and consisting in this one kingdom is all these local churches. And then he says, and if this is visible, he has no invisible kingdom or church. So he creates this bifurcation, right? He creates this like distinction between visibility on the one hand and invisibility on the other, as if those two things are mutually opposed. And if you have one, you can't have the other. And I just like, 
completely disagree with that. Completely disagree with that. That's that would be like if that's the if that's how we think, we would have to deny the incarnation of our Lord, because we would have to say, well, if Jesus is invisible, which we would have to say according to his divinity, he's invisible. Um, he can't be visible. Well, he is visible according to his human nature, right? So this this like bifurcation between visibility and invisibility doesn't work. It doesn't even work on the level of the personal believer because you have invisible operations of the Holy Spirit in the believer that are not in themselves visible, though they do produce visible fruits. And so this this there's this odd bifurcation between visibility and invisibility. It's got to be one or the other. And I would agree that it would be a contradiction and it would be false to say that the church is both visible and invisible in the same sense, uh, but we're not saying that. What we'd want to say is that in one sense, the church is invisible, in another sense, it is not. Uh, that is to say that from God's perspective, it's invisible, right? Uh, because God has knowledge that we don't have. Um, God knows who are his, and we don't. God knows the entire number of the elect, and we don't. Um, and so from, from his perspective, it is uh, a, a spiritual uh, but absolutely set reality. From our perspective, it's visible because we can only discern things. We can't see the heart, right? And so there's this materiality that we rely on as human beings living in this world and in this state we, because we cannot penetrate beyond flesh and bone and see what's actually in someone's heart. So imperfectly, we perceive the visible church. So it's not two different churches being spoken of when we say invisible and visible. It's actually just two aspects, uh, two ways of viewing and understanding the same church uh, that is uh, in union with Christ. One is perfect because it's God's understanding or knowledge of the church. Uh, the other imperfect because it's our imperfect perception of the church you know, we, we go by evidences, external evidences, hoping that those evidences bear witness to true, internal, invisible operations of the Holy Spirit. And I think that, the, you know, uh, that, be, that dynamic is true at the church level, right? Uh, just as we talk about the individual, the invisible realities, and the visible realities of the individual Christian, I think that same dynamic, which I hope no one would deny, uh, can be transferred to a larger scale when we're talking about the church as well. Let's go to Graves on kingdom continuity. So when he's talking about the visible kingdom here, he's 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 saying that this, this kingdom is entirely visible. There is no invisibility of the kingdom. And then look what he has to do because of this. So the kingdom is entirely visible. So uh, later on, he's going to say this, nor have I or any landmarker known to me. And he's, he's kind of trying to distance himself from the accusations that, neo-landmarkers eventually kind of took and adopted as their own position, and that is this whole chain link uh, idea or notion that I mentioned earlier. So he's trying to distance himself from that. He's saying, uh, nor have I or any landmarker known to me ever advocated the succession of any particular church or churches. So there, Graves is kind of trying to deny this chain link successionism. Uh, and then he says, but my position is that Christ, in the very days of John the Baptist, did establish a visible kingdom on earth, and that this kingdom has never yet been broken in pieces, nor given to another class of subjects, has never for a day been moved, nor ceased from the earth, and never will until Christ returns personally to reign over it. Now, I want to stop there and just ask a, a simple question. 
the kingdom is reducible to a visible in- entity that instantiates through visible local churches. And he's saying that this has this kingdom has never been moved. Again, he's transferring traits that you could posit about the universal church, you know, that it will never be prevailed upon, that it'll never fail, that it'll never be moved, um, because this is the elect of God that he is united to his son, and he's going to bring it to consummation. He's transferring that, what could only be said of the elect according to the mind of God, to these visible entities. And the issue with that is that all of a sudden, you end up, you're forced now to make the claim that this succession of churches has never erred. I mean, that would be the implication, right? Like, this succession of churches, that these visible churches that constitute this visible kingdom have never erred. And I think the problem with that is, and we see this play out even today. I mean, uh, I, I've, you know, it, it seems that there is a decline amongst the landmark movement um, in, in many circles. And part of that is the inability in some of these churches to become introspective. Because the attitude is, we are Christ's true church. Nothing will prevail upon us. If anything is afflicting us, it's the evil one. But it can't be us, because we're the true church, and we cannot be moved. So regardless of if that's what Graves is actually saying there, or if that's what he intended to convey, that is, I think, uh, an implicit practice and mindset that has been adopted as a result of some of the things that he's written. Let's go back to that same excerpt and move on. That the organization, he continues he first set up, which John called the bride, so the church is the bride, and which Christ called his church, constituted that visible kingdom. So, okay, so the bride, the bride, constitutes the visible kingdom. And today, all his true churches on earth constitute it. All right, so the bride, what he's doing here is, even though he's rejected the language of universality and Catholicity, he's applying the word the bride universally to apply to all individual churches. So he's basically doing what the 17th century Baptist did with the universal church concept, but he's just doing it with different words. It's a semantic, it's just a semantic change is all, is all it is, is all it appears to be. So the bride um, is constituted by all true churches on earth. Um, and therefore, he says, if his kingdom has stood unchanged and will to the end, he must always have had true and uncorrupted churches since his kingdom cannot exist without true churches. The, the problem here is, is local churches go in and out of existence all the time. And if, if the claim is that this kingdom, which is only visible and is constituted by these local churches, has never changed, I don't understand how that's not a, 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 a complete contradiction in terms. Because it, it, the kingdom has changed. It's, it's diminished, it's grown, it's diminished, it's grown throughout history. Um, and um, it's, it's, it's gotten to points where, uh, you know, we can't even discern whether or not it's on the earth, um, quite frankly. And, and so if, if that is what the church is reducible to, then it's ever-changing. It's ever-changing. 
again, this is why I go back to, you know, the Second London Confession and the language there and the distinctions there that it makes between the universal church on the one hand and local churches on the other. Um, because, I, again, I think that gives us workable categories that are scriptural. Part of the reason they work is because they are biblical and it's how God has designed a, designed his church. Uh, that that keeps us from having to dabble in these kinds of, of difficulties that I think lead to ecclesiastical shipwreck. Okay, the last quote from Graves I'm going to bring up has to do with the universal church. This is, this is going to give us insight into what he's critiquing. Again, I would agree with his critique uh, against this version of the doctrine of the universal church or this abuse of the doctrine of the universal church. It's just I wouldn't agree that this is all the doctrine, that this is all those words have ever meant, all right, uh, which I think he, he tends to just put everything into uh, this category that he's about to describe. So he's describing three different kinds of church theories, um, and he says the first is the Catholic or universal church theory, which both of those terms appear in the Second London Confession, showing that Baptists did indeed hold to this position before Graves' lifetime in the 19th century. Uh, and that's between both particular and general Baptists. Uh, it's pretty universal, again, pardon the potential other pun, but it's pretty universal amongst Baptists in the 17th century that they affirmed a Catholic and universal church. In fact, even the Anabaptist, Balthazar Hubmayer, affirms the universal Catholic church uh, because he affirms the uh, Apostles' Creed. And so he says this, the first is the Catholic or universal church theory. According to this, there can be but one church of the denomination adopting it. This is where I would agree with Graves. I would say, yeah, we don't want a, a, a definition of the universal church that would require the universal church being flattened into a single denomination. That would be bad. Uh, and that's how Roman Catholicism thinks of itself. It's, it's like this single denomination uh, that reserves to itself the, the, the title true church. And so he says, the first is a Catholic or universal church theory. According to this, there can be but one church of the denomination adopting it. Bad. I agree with Graves. Throughout the world. No single congregation is a church in any sense. Again, bad. Of course, the 17th century Baptists did not believe that. But an infinitesimal part of the universal idea. Uh, and this goes with, you know, Roman Catholics calling their local churches parishes. You know, they're actually, you know, the Vatican is actually, you know, the true church to which they're united and things like that. And so I think that's kind of what Graves is getting at. And so uh, he says the Greek Catholic Church is formed upon this theory, having the Grand Patriarch at Constantinople for its supreme head. And then he goes on to criticize Roman Catholicism. I want to go back to something he says. He says, according to this, there can be but one church of the denomination adopting it. I see a great deal of irony in those words because I think that's what Graves is doing. But with Baptist churches, uh, he, he's he's taking the church or, or the concept of the bride, and there can only be one so-called denomination or, or, or tradition that constitutes that position, uh, that constitutes the true bride, and that's, that's Baptist. So he's doing... It seems like he's doing, albeit with some semantic differences, he's doing exactly what Rome has done by taking the title of the true church upon herself as the only true church. And I think Graves is taking the title of true church upon, you know, his his stripe of 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 
the Baptist tradition and saying, you know, we're the only true church. Um, and, and so I, I think what happens as a result, and we begin to think of, you know, your own, uh, your own tradition as the only true church, um, is you begin unchurching other people. Uh, you, you begin unchurching other people. Uh, we've seen how that can create all sorts of problems because the implication there is that those people are not united to Christ, even if they're true believers and so on. Uh, so there's issues with that. But when you adopt the attitude of, I am in the position and I have the prerogative to unchurch other Christians, uh, then I think that the mindset has to be one of schism and quarrelsomeness and uh, a, a sort of attitude that is always looking outward and saying they are the ones who are in error. It's those who are, those people are doing this or those people are saying that. Those people are the ones who are, are wrong. And so it creates this, this need to be overly polemical and quarrelsome uh, in order to um, rebuke what you perceive to be the false churches. And, um, and so, uh, again, there are false churches. It's just the question becomes like, what, what makes a church false and what doesn't? Uh, and, and, then, and then who gets to decide that uh, finally? And, uh, and so I think that's, that's, uh, that's very important. We, we need to be humble, right? Whenever we're, we're talking about someone else's position, we need to be able to describe them in a way that they would describe themselves. And, um, and, and then secondly, we need to be able to, uh, to, to dialogue with them um, in a way that respects them as human beings and that uh, respects their opinions. We can think that they're wrong and we can make good arguments that they're, that they're indeed wrong, um, but we have, to, we have to do so in such a way that adorns the gospel, um, that honors the words of the apostle, you know, that we're not to be uh, quarrelsome, uh, that we're not to form or, or, or exacerbate schism. You know, there are very strong warnings in the New Testament against that sort of behavior. Um, and so I think we need to go, take pains to actually, uh, I'm not saying like link arms with uh, apostates or anything like that, but we need to take pains to, um, to reach across the aisle uh, and grab hands with those, shake hands with those who believe the same gospel as we do. Um, you know, that's the unifying factor right there, even though they might have differences when it comes to baptism or ecclesiology, and we should have strong disagreements over those things. But at the end of the day, if they believe the same gospel, they're united to the same Christ, and we owe them charity per the instructions of the Apostle himself, uh, thinking about the Apostle Paul, uh, per the instructions of Christ, right? So um, uh, if, if they're not, if they're not, I mean, if they're truly united to Christ, if they're believing in the true gospel, uh, even if they have these differences with us, then we need to be able to affirm them as brothers and we need to be able to uh, love them. They're not even our enemies, <laughs> right? Uh, they're, uh, they are brothers, or sisters, and so we need to be able to to recognize that uh, it is high treason against the King of Heaven to uh, bite and devour other Christians, and so we need to we need to be very very 
careful that we do not over become overly polemical uh, trying to um, trying to defend ourselves. Honestly, we don't have to be. Uh, if we have the truth, then we can be secure in the truth. And um, and so what I think what I think happens in this case uh, with Graves' theology is you have uh, a uh, an isolationist uh, kind of air that develops as a result of this. Again, the the kingdom's only visible, and it's it consists in only Baptist churches. It's only Baptist churches. Okay, so I, I think that creates a certain kind of 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 mindset um, uh, that could be potentially damaging. So let's look at Ephesians five twenty five through twenty seven. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Um, You know, I mentioned earlier that the scripture teaches that there is a single entity called the church, and this is one of the preeminent places where it does that, Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Now, I want you to notice something about the text. I highlighted the uh, the nouns and the pronouns so that you can see that it's the same entity. It's the same object from atonement to consummation. You have the entire history of redemption wrapped up in just a few verses here in Ephesians 5. Because from the atoning work of Christ, who he gave himself for, it's the church, that same organism is what shows up at the consummation, that she should be holy and without blemish, you know, presented to Christ himself, a glorious church. That's the consummation. So we're, we're obviously not talking about a single local church here. Uh, we're obviously not talking about even a band of local churches at this point. Uh, we're talking about uh, an an entity that also consists of saints in heaven, uh, okay, and and it also and, and it also consists of, you know, it's 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 me, right? As a true Christian, it's it's uh, uh, the brother who is on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean in Europe who is a true Christian, you know. These are these are people. This all applies to. Of course, the Lord uses means available only within local churches, and that's where local churches become very important, especially for Baptist ecclesiologies, because there's nowhere else where this takes place really and truly in this state, but in the local church. But the point that this is, but the point that I'm making here is that the church, right, that organism, that noun is the same thing being spoken of between the atonement and the consummation. And uh, like I said, you know, like if you go back to year uh, 300, every local church that existed in year 300 is now dead, right? Uh, that's pretty much an indisputable fact. Every church that exists that has existed, that existed in year 300 AD is dead. Those local churches don't exist anymore. Um, and so... This so Ephesians five twenty five has to be speaking of an entity that's more transcendent than just individual local churches, right? It has to be speaking of the elect of God who are united to Jesus Christ, who nevertheless gather in local churches in this present state. Let's go to Hebrews twelve. 
Hebrews 12, 22 through 24, but you have come, that's the perfect tense. The perfect tense uh, communicates past action that has continuing effects. So, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. What church is it talking about? It's not talking about a particular local church. You know, the saint in North Africa right now, and me, or, you know, uh, the Christian in Alabama, or the Christian in Texas, or the Christian in Maine, um, has come, again, in the perfect tense, <clears throat> as a result of his or her union with Christ, has come to the church of the firstborn. What is that? It's the new Jerusalem. It's a heavenly Jerusalem. Paul speaks about it in Galatians 4, right? So uh, this, is, this is a transcendent entity. It's a spiritual entity. It's why we say it's invisible. And all of the elect are part of it. Let's go to Galatians chapter 1. I want to make a comparison in terms here because I want to show that the singular and the plural use of ecclesia, which is the Greek word for church, is used in Galatians 1 itself. And, and Paul uses it interchangeably in a significant way. So in Galatians 1.13, he says, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. But then a few verses later in Galatians chapter 1, verses 22 through 24, he says, And I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but they were hearing only, He who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God in me. So, what church is Paul talking about? Well, when he uses the universal term in Galatians 1.13, the church, he is speaking about the churches. So he's perfectly comfortable with subsuming the churches under one universal or general term, the church, in Galatians 1.13. Uh, there are more examples that I could give of this kind of language in Scripture. Uh, Colossians, Ephesians, Ephesians especially. Ephesians is like the epistle on the church. You know, one faith, uh, you know, one baptism, one Lord, one spirit, and so on. It, it's, it's, it's the epistle of unity. The middle wall of separation has been broken down between Gentile and Jew, and they've been brought near, united in Christ. Union with Christ is a constant theme in Ephesians, and it's intertwined with the doctrine of the church. And so I think what happens with something like landmarkism, uh, as, as, as appreciative as I am of the concern behind landmarkism, what spurred Graves on to, uh, to you know, write these things, as appreciative as I am as the honesty uh, that comes in formulating positions like these. Uh, I'm nevertheless very concerned on a pastoral and theological level uh, about landmarkism and and whether or not it can actually stand up to scrutiny from that's drawn from the Holy Scriptures and from Baptist history, quite frankly, because in the 17th century, you're just not going to find landmarkism in the 17th century. It's just not. It's just not there. Um there's no place where the universal Catholic Church is going to be denied amongst Baptists in the 17th century. That does not happen until you get midway through the 19th century 
200 years later. Um, and so, uh, I, I, you know, um, I think, I think it's problematic. Um, but I, I do want to end this by saying that, uh, I think there are brothers, right? I, I think, uh, I think landmarkers, assuming they, again, assuming they believe the same gospel I do, they're brothers, Right, and uh, even though they have differences, I think they're serious differences, and I think there's some serious practical consequences that that flow from from that position. Um, but I, you know, I, uh, I, I, if they believe the same gospel as I do, uh, then they're brothers, and they are united to Christ, and they are part of this wonderful bride of God that is called the Church of the Living God. And so uh, hopefully this was helpful in getting, you know, spurring some thoughts about these things. This is pretty introductory. Again, if you want some primary source material, you go to Landmark, Old Landmarkism, What Is It? by J.R. Graves. Um, J.R. Graves turned a, a kind of a pamphlet or a tract by uh, J.M. Pendleton into uh, kind of he published it in tract form. Uh, and it's called The Old Landmark Reset. So that would be another uh, resource that's that's quite uh, short. It's brief. Um, and there are other resources. If you want a uh, you know, general idea of kind of how, you know, some, some examples of how landmarkers have tried to prove the Baptist succession from Baptist history, you can look no further than, you know, uh, an author called Orchard, which tries to produce uh, a case for Baptist successionism. You can look at... Um, uh, J.M. Carroll, uh, B.H. Carroll's brother with the Trail of Blood. Uh, what you'll notice in some of those things is that they actually identify Baptists, uh, or they identify some historical sects as Baptists, which are heretical. They've been considered to be heretical, not just by Roman Catholics, but by even Baptists. And so, um, I don't think anybody, I don't think we'd want to do that. Um, uh, but, um, uh, anyway, you know the resources, uh, go do your own reading if you're interested in it. Um, if this was helpful to you, share it. If it was helpful to you, maybe it'll be helpful to someone else. God bless. Have a wonderful rest of your day. We'll catch you next time.